John 17, today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. We are returning this morning to the series that we began during the season of Lent on John chapter 17 called The Prayer We Need. In John chapter 17, just to review a bit, we have the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible. And that alone makes it special. We would want to pay careful attention to this prayer of Jesus. In addition to that, we have the final prayer of Jesus for his disciples right before he was arrested and taken away to be crucified. And Jesus was very, very aware of this. He knew this was happening. He begins his prayer in verse 1 by saying, Father, the hour has come. So as Jesus did, um, if you were to know that you are in your last moments with people you love and care about, whatever you say, all your words, whatever you pray about, the prayers that you pray would not be wasted on frivolous things or trivial matters, right? They would be words and prayers from your deepest heart, your highest priorities. And that's what we have here in this prayer. We have a glimpse into the deepest heart of Jesus for his disciples and his highest priorities for them. And that's what led me to this text for us, for our church in this season that for many people, including myself, is a very disorienting season, these past two and a half years or whatever we call it. Very confusing. We have all kinds of voices coming at us saying, this is what's going on. This is what you should think. This is what you should do. And to cut through all that disorienting noise, we have this prayer of Jesus that gives us his deepest heart and shows us what is most important to him. If you look at the text for this morning in verse 20, what we have is a shift in the prayer of Jesus. The entirety of chapter 17 is the prayer. The whole thing is a prayer. And there are clear divisions as Jesus moves through his prayer. If you have a Bible with headings, it might even delineate these different sections in the prayer. In verse 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, he was praying for himself as he faced his imminent death by crucifixion. And he remembered his purpose. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying there. He's focusing his prayers there on the original disciples, those 12 and the other disciples who were with him at that time and who heard this prayer. He says there he's praying for the people 
You, Father, he says, gave me from the world. But here in verse 20, look at that again. He says, I'm praying not only for these, his disciples there in the room with him, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So we we can learn a lot. We can apply a lot from all of Jesus' prayer, the whole thing, as we have been in this series. His prayer for his original disciples applies to us. We are his followers, those of you who are Christians here. So it applies to us by extension. But this part of the prayer in verses 20 through 26 is the one place we have in all of the Bible where Jesus prays directly, specifically for us. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles, This is the one place where Jesus prays specifically for you. It's even in the grammar. Usually I don't like to point out Greek grammar and that sort of thing, but the tense here in verse 20 is the present participle. So literally translated, he says, I am praying for those who are believing in me through their word who are believing right now in this present moment, in the present, this is the prayer of Jesus for you. And here it is, verse 21. May they all be one. But there's a second prayer here too, verse 22. So that they may be one as we are. Okay, that's actually the same. But wait, there's a third prayer here Jesus has for us, specifically for us who are believing in him right now. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Three times. The same prayer. This is the prayer Jesus believed we most need. It's very clear. Three times in three verses, oneness. I'm going to say up front, this is going to be a two-part message. I think in the title it says part one. This could be a five-part message or more. So I'm going to do my best to lead us through this text over the course of two weeks. Today, my goal is just to lay a foundation. And what I want to show you from this prayer is, one, how important oneness is, why it's important, and talk about how it happens. And that's what we're going to try to do. That's what I hope to do this morning. Uh, As I go through this, I bet there will be a lot of other questions. What about this? You didn't talk about that with oneness and unity and disunity and all that. Send me those questions as I prepare next week because I want to be more specific and dive into those things. But we have to have this foundation first. First, how important oneness is. The first thing we need to see here is just how important oneness is to Jesus and thus how important it should be to everyone who follows him and believes in him. I'm going to spend a good amount of time on this because if I just quickly say what I already said, look, Jesus prayed for this three times for you, for us specifically. Look how important it is. I think that will have very little impact. So I'm asking you to tune in, to engage, and to listen And look at this text with me. Slowly let it soak in. 
Because the truth is, right now, by all accounts and observations uh, that I am familiar with, the church, at least in the United States, in the West, we might say, is mirroring, is a reflection of the division in the world. I think we may all sense that in some way, shape, or form. So if we say that we believe unity is important, then all Christians must ask, do I really believe it? And if so, what's happening all around me and what do I need to do about it? We've already seen that this is the one thing Jesus prays specifically for us, for those who come to believe in him at all times, in all places, in all circumstances in this present world. Of all the things he could have prayed for us, he prayed for this. And here's something that's very significant about this as we look at this prayer of Jesus. Jesus had already prayed for oneness for his original disciples in verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. It sounds just like what he's praying here for us, all who believe after them. Here's why this is significant to note. Of all the things that Jesus had prayed for his disciples in verses 6 through 19, joy, sanctification and life change, spiritual protection, being sent into the world with purpose and mission, the one thing out of all those that he chooses to pray here for us, for those who would come to believe in him, is oneness. And I'm not saying those other things don't apply to us or they're not important. And I hope I've already showed that they are in our previous sermons. But I'm saying if we had to pick one thing from this prayer of Jesus that gives us his deepest heart and priorities, that is most important to him, what we might say is the primary atmosphere for all those other things to grow and flourish, joy, mission, holiness, etc. Then from the text and from the prayer, That one thing is crystal clear. It's oneness and unity. So let me pause right there and ask you just for a moment, if you're a Christian, before reading this, uh, before we talked about it this morning, and, and I'll ask myself before studying this passage this week, would any of you have picked oneness? If I said, what is the deepest heart and priorities of Jesus, the thing he most passionately prayed for you and wants for you right now, would any of you have said unity and oneness with other Christians? Holiness, life change, being distinct in lifestyle. Many of us might have picked that. Being people of the truth, being sanctified in the truth, sticking to the truth, defending the truth, many of us may have picked that. Living by mission, not just living for ourselves, but going outward and having purpose. We could have picked that. Or joy, having inner contentment and a deep sense of satisfaction. Many of us would have picked that. And those would make it probably on our list of priorities in life and as Christians. But how many of us would have said to build and maintain and strengthen and protect oneness that I have with other followers of Jesus? In addition to that, this clear importance that Jesus gives to oneness in his prayer, there's something else here, right here in this prayer, that adds a whole other layer, a deep layer to how important oneness is to Jesus. 
Look at how he describes the oneness and the unity he's praying for. He says it in verse 11. He's repeating it here in verse 22. He says, may they be one even as we are one. Now, what is he saying? May the unity of my followers be even as the unity that I have, the oneness that I have with my Father. So, we could ask, how important is it to Jesus that He is one with the Father? How important is the oneness of Jesus, the Son, with His Father? Theologically, to ask that question, it's almost wrong. It's sacrilegious. It's like unholy for me to say that because it's everything to Him. Jesus cannot but be one with His Father. The Father and the Son have eternally delighted in one another before the world existed. That's in this prayer. They will forever. They have, together with the Holy Spirit, been one God in three persons, in mutual unending, infinite love. They exist in an unbreakable bond of unity. They know nothing but to be one. Everything they are and do and feel is as one while remaining as distinct persons as we sing in the hymn, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The word as, even as we are one. From that word we can conclude. It's as important as it is to Jesus that he is one with the Father. In the same way, he's saying, it is just as important that we be one with all who believe in him. And he's very clear this applies to everyone. He says, may they all be one, every single one of those who follow him. From this, we can see That oneness is not something we do. It's not a strategy we put into place necessarily. It's not something uh, that is about a practical step that we implement. Oneness is not something we do. Jesus is saying oneness is something we are. We learn to be. If we are in Jesus Christ by faith as a Christian, he says, I am in them. And so... With him being in us, we are one with all others who are in him. It's not something we do. Jesus is saying, it's something you are. It's something I make you. If I am in you, you are one with all others who are in me. And so we need to develop this probably in next week's sermon. But this tells us that unity is formed at the level of our identity who we believe we are. Becoming a Christian, we just had men and women, young men and women here, profess their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because they ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. We didn't say, here's the paper. Do you believe this? Sign on and you're a Christian. It's not because there was a certain ethical standard that they lived up to. Are you doing these things? Are you not doing those things? Okay, you can come forward and profess your faith. No, Being a Christian, a genuine and real Christian means Jesus is in you and you are in him. You are one and united with Jesus Christ, especially our older kids. You heard a lot about that in Chris's class. United with Jesus, not on paper, not because of your moral success, but because you have trusted in him. He 
is in you, and you are in him. The most important thing about you, if you are a Christian, is Christ in you and you in Christ. And this forms and shapes every other aspect of your identity, who you are. We'll come back to that next week. In this most holy prayers of Jesus for us, for you, it's very, very clear oneness is of utmost importance to him. Before I move on to my next point, I felt like I had to do this. I want to show you what I saw this week as I was doing my study in the rest of the New Testament. This is the prayer of Jesus. This is the holy of holy prayers of Jesus for us, for you. But we also need to see how this same theme, the oneness of Christians with one another, is repeated throughout the New Testament. So I want to show you some things. And I know sometimes when somebody shows a whole bunch of verses, one after the other, you just kind of like glaze over. Don't glaze over. Look at these one by one and let them soak in. Tune in to these. Let's look at these on the screen. In Ephesians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is our peace who made both groups one. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus died to tear the veil between us us and God. And he died to tear down the wall between us and each other. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all who is above all and through all and in all. We're not called to create unity. We're called to keep it and make every effort to preserve what is in fact true. There's only one. There's only one body. There's only one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Our lives are to demonstrate that. Ephesians 4.13, next slide. Until, Paul says, he's at the end of a thought, we all reach unity or oneness in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Our maturity is tied to our unity. Our unity comes when we see the fullness of Jesus Christ. Often we divide Jesus into our favorite parts and we divide the church into our favorite parts of Jesus. Paul says that's not healthy, that's not how you're gonna grow. When the fullness of Jesus is present and unity and growth happen. Next slide. Um, Oh, we skipped one. Galatians 3, you can go back. For those who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are one, all one, in Christ Jesus. Ethnic, social, gender differences are a bridge. We are clothed with Jesus as our primary identity. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. I'm not preaching on this text right here, but did you hear what he said? Is this possible? This is what we're called to. He's giving an earnest appeal. No divisions. Agree. Be united. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your hearts. The rule of your heart should be to keep, build, and guard oneness. Next slide. 
Philippians 2, 1 and 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you have any of these things in Jesus, Paul says, be one. And they lead and create oneness. Last Definitely not the last place in the Bible that speaks to this. Last reference we'll look at. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Unity is not uniformity. We are individuals and we are one. How does this happen? Paul says it happens in Christ. Let's pause there. I want to ask you right now, do you feel it? Do you feel a bit of passion for this? If you are a follower of Jesus, yes! We should be like that. This is who we should be, one. But do you also feel a good bit of grief and sadness? A few thoughts. Given the history of division among Christians, those who profess to be Christians in the church, Given how much disagreement and disunity we see in the church right now, we may be tempted to give up. But we cannot. If you are a Christian, it's way too important. It's too important to Jesus. We cannot give up. Right now, those who call themselves Christians have already said this in our context here in the U.S. It seems like we're very, very divided extremely. Not the first time in history this has happened or we could say this, but at a time when the world is divided and polarized, Christians, it can seem, are just as polarized, especially if you spend any time on Twitter, which I do and I shouldn't. (laughs) What's wrong? How could such an important prayer of Jesus seem like it has gone unanswered? That should disturb us. There are over 45,000 plus denominations now, according to one count. Our divisions didn't start in 2020. And so, friends, at this point, I just want to ask you first. Yes, we must recognize there is failure here as Christians. And we must come to a place where we admit and realize our efforts and strategies are not enough. This is Jesus' prayer. He didn't say... Here's the strategy to do this. He said, this is my prayer for you. And so, friends, just at this point, I want to encourage you. If you are a Christian, it's not going to come about by our efforts. It's not going to come about because we know the path to unity. It's going to come about as a result of prayer, being united in prayer with and alongside Jesus. It's very, very important. Why is it important? Next point, from the passages we looked at throughout the New Testament, we could list so many different reasons why it's important, and I explored some of those as we went through that list. But Jesus focused on one reason, specifically in this prayer, why unity is important. Verse 21, so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, he repeats it, so that the world may know you sent me. The reason unity is so important for Christians is that it displays something So unique, so different and compelling, so unexplainable and so otherworldly, that it, Jesus says, will convince those who do not believe in him 
to consider. Maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he was sent by the Father to save the world. When Christians are one, people who are not Christians are led to seriously consider that these crazy, insane claims of Christianity that we believe to be true are actually true. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has made man. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead. He is Lord of all. He is reigning right now as the risen Lord over everything. And he will come again to make all things new. Just stop for a moment and go, that's, that's what we believe. That's crazy to believe that. And yet we believe it is true. What will convince someone who says, I can't even understand where you're, that's like a different planet. Jesus says, what will convince them to consider it is if they see a love that's so unexplainable that they have to ask, where does that come from? The unity of Christians and evangelistic credibility are tied together. So much so in Jesus' prayer here that we could say, based on this, Jesus is giving the world an excuse not to believe if they just see a divided, conflicted, disagreeing church. In Florida, where I grew up, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, we have these things called love bugs. Does anybody know what a love bug is? Yeah, some Floridians do. Um, If you've ever seen them or heard of them, they're super weird little bugs. Uh, They're black bugs with orange dots. They're so so weird that there's a rumor that is, is out there. And until this week, I thought it was true, I'm still not sure, but there is this myth or this rumor that they were created at the University of Florida, where I went to school, in a laboratory, in order to, like, attach to mosquito larvae and kill, like, reduce the mosquito population. So that's, that's like, a thing out there, and I I still think it might be true, but I don't know. (laughs) The reason they're weird, um, well, first, if if you're in Florida, you can't. You can't get away from them. At certain seasons, they're everywhere. If you're driving on the freeway, they will like splatter all over your vehicle. Your entire front of your car will be covered in love bug guts. What makes them weird is that they attach together from the back. You've never seen it. These are two bugs attached together, flying around. So there's two bugs flying and doing their thing. And I was all, growing up, I'm like, I mean, how... How can two, you see bugs, they're flying all, how can two bugs like attach and fly anywhere without just going in circles all the time? Like we're going this way, now we're going this way and just go circles. But they fly and they do their thing and they fly all around attached together. Yeah, you can look it up on your phone. It's true. So I still have no idea how you can, they're facing in opposite directions and yet they're figuring out how to fly and get around. How is it possible? I have no idea. Somehow. What doesn't seem possible, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, people who were going in different directions, Jesus says, because of him, they become one. They listen to each other carefully before speaking. They learn from each other. They support each other. They encourage one another. They challenge and exhort each other. They will sacrifice their lives and their time and their things for one another. They'll share their possessions and money with each other. 
They won't give up on each other. They're not competing or trying to prove themselves to each other. They value each other for who they are. And with patience and gentleness, they give each other space to grow into who they are meant to be. Their relationship and community is not contingent or based on what are they getting out of it. But instead, they're pouring in to this community by forgiving and bearing with one another, dealing with differences and disagreements, all with compassion and grace, not trying to get power or control. Do you want to be in a community like that? Jesus says it's possible. He's praying this for us, for our good, and so that the world would know and share in it too. How does this happen? Third point. It's so important to Jesus. Why? Because in the oneness of the church is displayed the truth. It gives credibility to the gospel and reality. But how does it happen? Is there hope for a divided church? Can we ever be one? We might ask that, but it's here and Jesus prayed for it. Not in the world to come, but he said in this world. So how? Well, because we see these divisions, we might have some things in our mind where we're wondering, what about this? How can we unite with people who believe that? And they call themselves Christians and those kinds of things are swirling about in our minds. We realize as we've seen the history of this play out in the church with with Christians, we realize this has to get deep. This is not a surface thing. How does this happen? It has to get to the very core of what causes conflict and disagreement. And Jesus' prayer shows us something that deep and that powerful. Look at verse 23. I in them, in you and me, that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you've sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Verse 26, I made your name known to them. I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Here's Jesus' answer for how this happens. This is how it happens. When the same love that he has from the Father, the same love the Father has for Jesus, his Son, when that love is in us, when that love gets in us, everything about how we relate to each other changes. We become people who can build, strengthen, and repair this unity. It changes how we see people. It changes how we deal with disagreements. How does that love get into us? I think it comes down to verse 22. Jesus says this. This is a mysterious phrase. The commentators are trying to figure this out. I think this is the key. Verse 22, the glory you've given me, I have given to them. What is that? The glory that the Father has given Jesus, he gives to us. What kind of glory is he talking about? I think this gets right to the heart. Right to the heart of the poison, the deep root of our disagreements and our conflict. Right to the heart of our self-righteousness. Right to the heart of the thing that makes us think we are above other people, that we don't need other people, that those people are over there and we are over here, and that is glory. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a glory. 
You're not going to achieve this glory. It's going to be given to you. Glory is worth. What does it mean? To have worth, to have value, to have a righteousness or a rightness that is seen and acknowledged. The thing that stands out about you or shines out about you or the thing you most want to stand out about you or shine about you in the eyes of other people that you work for, that you work hard for, that you are driven to get so that other people would see it, so that you would be worth something, so that you would be right and valued and acknowledged and significant. That is glory. Last weekend, I took my youngest son to a gem Gem mine, there's active mines in Oceanside and, and Pala. He loves mines, or he loves gems and rocks and minerals and that sort of thing. And so we went to this mine, and it's a mine where they take out a bunch of dirt or like a chunk from their mine, and they throw it down in the middle of all these tables, and everybody just goes into this pile and starts digging for gems and treasures, right? So you get this pile of dirt, you put it in your sifter, you shake it out, stuff falls down, all the stuff you don't want falls down. You take it and you dip it in the uh, water, right? And then you shake it. And what you're looking for is glory, something shiny, something colorful. And you say, that's the one. You can find some real gems there, by the way. We, we found some good stuff. You say, we don't want all this other stuff. You toss all the plain rocks and the dirt. Let it go to the ground. We're looking for glory, something that shines, something that stands out. That's what we're looking for. For all of us, we find our sense of worth and righteousness in something that we believe sets us apart from other people, that gives us our identity, our worth, our value. Examples. We might say, I am a Democrat. My glory, my sense of worth and righteousness is not being a Republican. Or we could switch that around if you want. I am a successful person. My glory is not being a failure. I am a well-liked person by others. My glory is not being that person who's not noticed or doesn't stand out, who is not needed. I am a good-looking person. My worth and righteousness is not being normal-looking. A fun one, but a true one. I am a Dodger fan. My sense of worth is not being a Giant fan. It's a joke, but not if you know how things can get. I am the one who got into these schools. I am not the one who went to those schools. I am the one who can play this sport who can sing this way and play this instrument. Not like all those other people that don't have talent. Or we can flip it around. We could say, I'm not the popular one, but I'm not like those popular people. They're so superficial and shallow. Like There's nothing to them. Yeah, I'm not as successful as everybody else, but all those other people who just follow the script given to them in the American dream, how lame is that? I'm not as smart as all the nerds, those geeks with no life. To bring it into the area of our Christianity. I am this in my theology. I am Reformed, Presbyterian. I'm not like those people who don't get it. I am at this church. Look how awesome this church is, so big. Look who we have in our leadership, not like that church. 
I am the one who takes my faith seriously. This is what I do with my faith, not like all those other people who compromise. And do you see what we're doing? We're getting glory from a glory that we achieve, and we're saying, I'm not like those other people dividing the world into two. What can break that? The gospel of Jesus Christ can break that like nothing else. Because in the gospel, that glory is humbled to the ground, to the dust. Because the gospel says, you are loved, you have glory, not because of anything you achieved, not because of anything you have done. In fact, the thing you most glory in, the thing that you think sets you apart from everybody else, that's the one thing that most keeps you from Jesus Christ and knowing him. And until that thing is crumbled into the dust and grinded down and thrown out like a worthless rock, you won't know Jesus. And when it is, and when you come, you can come secure, knowing that you have a love that you didn't earn, a glory that has been given to you because you are loved, delighted in, approved. You have the righteousness and the beauty of Jesus. You have the love of a father. And in that love of a father, you become more glorious than anything you could ever achieve. And so the Christian gospel humbles us to the dust and it gives us a greater glory, secure, not in anything that we have ever done. And so we are able to lay aside those differences, lay aside those things we think give us glory and not those people. And in humility, learn to see the glory in others. And in humility, learn to see even the greatest things we are able to achieve are simply gifts given to us from a loving Father. So we say, I'm just a rock like everyone else. I've got no glory in myself, but because of Jesus, the Father sees me as a glorious gem with great value and worth because of the glory of Jesus, his son. I did not achieve it, but I've been given this glory. And so, I can love all the other normal rocks out there, learn from them, listen to them, receive them, and learn to value the thing I share with others. It's far, far more important than what makes me different than them that we are loved by the Father. Let's pray that that love would get into us. Father, this prayer of Jesus that says we are loved just like him, it's hard to believe that it's true. How can it be true? Can it be true that we are loved with a perfect love like that, that we are so secure and approved and safe, that we always have refuge, that we always have your delight, that your love covers over all of our ugliness, the things that we don't want other people to see, the things that we don't take glory in, and your love is not based on us maintaining our own glory. I pray that you would humble us, but I pray that you would also give us that great and deep assurance that we are truly and indeed loved like that. And from there, I pray that you would help us see just how important, beautiful, and powerful unity is.
oneness is. Not only to you, but how it provides the atmosphere for all these other things that we so long for in our lives, purpose, joy, change, sanctification, holiness, and closeness with you. Help us pursue and find unity in your love and by your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.